This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. I have been reading this book called Black Victorians by Keisha Abraham and John Wolfe. John is with me. Black Victorians hidden in history. Are they hidden because in the historic records, the color of the complexion isn't noted? Yeah, spot on. Absolutely. I mean, you don't get ethnicity mentioned in the census until 1991. So that's one of the reasons why so so much of the black presence is is hidden in the archives, because they just didn't didn't say. And why, you, as a historian, why is it important? Well, I think, you know, I got to this subject via kind of a strange roundabout way, really. My, my interest in the history of the freak show and my first book was on uh, looking uh, at that history of the freak show and how in the Victorian era difference was defined and displayed as a, a form of entertainment. And through that, I started looking at ethnographic exhibitions, sometimes referred to as human zoos, where people from across the globe were brought to Britain and displayed essentially as freaks of nature, whether that was Zulus or cannibals. Um, and I was kind of interested in this phenomenon of how race and ethnicity was held up as something to be gawked at, something that was different uh, and defined those uh, abroad as essentially other and inferior. So I began looking at this, um, but the more I was researching, the more I saw that there was a much broader history to tell about um, black Victorians in this period. And I didn't really want to just consign them to the realm of human zoos. So I teamed up with Keisha and together we you know, tackled the archives and uh, yeah, came up with, with black Victorians. And, and this idea of the freak show, which is abhorrent, isn't it? It's just totally mm. abhorrent. And, and I think of the Elephant Man. Was it a largely Anglo-Saxon thing? Um, was it something that the Brits took to, which was unusual? Yeah, the Brits absolutely loved it. Again, it's one of those sort of hidden histories, really. I mean, the, the freak show wowed everyone from Queen Victoria down to every uh, average man, woman and child. It was a really popular form of entertainment. And many of the freak performers were the kind of Kim Kardashians of their generation. <laughs> oh, um, yes, I know. <laughs> and you had this interesting relationship between America uh, and Britain because it was a, a number of American uh, freak performers, most notably Charles Stratton, also known as General Tom Thumb, who was brought over to Britain uh, in the 1840s. Uh, and thanks in large part to Barnum's ability to manipulate the press, um, he managed to get a meeting between Queen Victoria and General Tom Thumb, who was 25 inches tall, six years old. And Queen Victoria was so wowed by this person of short stature, and he was such a great performer and was so funny, um, that she saw him on, on three separate occasions. And Barnum really capitalised on this in the press, uh, which began to, to talk about a deformitomania uh, in the 1840s. And, and Buckingham Palace became a revolving door for, for freak performers, including uh, black performers, Millie and Christie, um, who were billed as the um, two-headed nightingale. They sang and danced, and they were from North Carolina to, to black women. Um, and it became this this popular form of entertainment and grew from a rather sort of stigmatized, informal, traveling style of entertainment to become commercialized, popular um, and yeah, centralized within Victorian culture. Now, Black Victorians. Uh, Queen Victoria seems to be able to take two 
diametrically opposed positions at the same time to mm. to be racist and not racist because she had friends she had black people in her inner circle didn't she yeah absolutely i mean one of the things that we wanted to look at was black victorians across the social spectrum and we found that you know and i should caveat this keisha and i happily labor in the shadows of of many uh, historians before us including um, black historians who have explored this. Um, but you had a number of different black Victorians uh, who were really, you know, quite intimate with Queen Victoria, everyone from Sarah Forbes Bonetta uh, to Samuel Crowther, uh, who was a black bishop ordained uh, in 1864, uh, down to uh, Prince Alamatheu, who came from Ethiopia. Well, and yeah, um, I mean, I, I want to go back through some of those, but that mm. guy, um, he was sent to Cheltenham College, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, that... <laughs> I mean straight into the middle classes. Yep, straight Cheltenham College, then he went to Rugby College, and then he was at Sandhurst. Um, and actually, we went through Sandhurst archives, and we found uh, his name and, and his entry records. And also, he, he didn't do very well at Sandhurst. He was clearly unhappy there. In the, um, I, I recall in, in one of the archives, it said that he failed at his probationary exam. Uh, he wasn't showing up regularly. He clearly was was going through some some personal difficulties, uh, and tragically, he died very young uh, and was buried in in Windsor. Um, but yeah, straight into the kind of upper echelons of Britain's uh, educational establishment. Uh, the, the three figures, the three named figures in that last sentence. Uh, you started with a woman whose photograph appears in your book because mm. uh, the black Victorians, the Victorian time coincides with the invention of photography. Now, who was she? Yeah, so Sarah Forbes Bonetta, she came from present day Benin um, and not much of her early life is known, but it, it, it would appear that uh, her family uh, were killed or she was uh, taken by King Gyoza, who was the, the king of Dahomey. Um, and she was brought to his palace. And in 1850, Frederick Forbes, um, a naval captain for the West uh, African Squadron, comes to Dahomey to try and um, talk them out of being uh, involved in the slave trade. Uh, the king, Kingdom of Dahomey was quite a sort of a leader um, in the slave trade. And what happens in that interaction is that the king of Dahomey, King Gyoza, uh, actually gives Frederick Forbes um, a gift in the form of Sarah Forbes Bonetta, uh, gives her to Forbes to take back to Queen Victoria. So she's essentially a gift and she goes back um, to Britain and is uh, presented to Her Majesty mm -hmm. in 1850, on the same day actually as um, the Prince of Wales's birthday. And Queen Victoria and others determined that Sarah Forbes Bonetta should be trained as a missionary. So she's sent back to uh, West Africa. She studies in Sierra Leone. Within about four years, she's brought again back to, to Britain, where she lives with a missionary family. Um, and uh, as, as it was stipulated in uh, you know, the Victorian ideals of uh, uh, what a woman should do, it was determined that she should marry and in 1862, she she marries James Davies, um, also of uh, Yoruba, Yoruba descent. And they marry in, in Brighton. Um, and ultimately, she settles back in West Africa. But she was kind of an example of someone who entered the upper echelon. She had an intimate and close relationship with Queen Victoria. They wrote letters to each other. 
Queen Victoria gave her gifts, jewels, invited her around to Buckingham Palace. But she was very much living a life dictated by the Queen and, and by others. Um, and she was sort of, in a way, seen as uh, a kind of an experiment that, that she could uh, improve. If she could be improved, other Africans, and by the way, all in quotation marks, could also potentially be improved as well. And she goes on to have three children, one of whom, Victoria Davies, becomes the god's daughter to Queen Victoria. And she actually studies at Cheltenham Ladies College. Um, <laughs> and she too has a daughter who becomes the goddaughter to Queen Victoria's youngest uh, daughter, uh, Princess Beatrice. So you had this sort of familial connection between uh, the Bonetta family and um, the royals. There's so much to ask you about, John. <laughs> You're mentioning um, Black Victorians as in African. Uh, is that your... I mean, What I've got in mind is when... Queen Victoria died, there was a guy of Indian descent who was mm. living. Um, and when the Queen dies, I think he was told to push off. So are you um, as interested in uh, people of Indian descent as you are of African descent? Well, it was one of those things. The You know, we, we had to sort of focus on something. And there are so many different uh, groups who have very rich histories that we could have focused on. But in the end, Keisha and I decided that we'd focus on those uh, of African uh, descent or origin. Um, so we do look at uh, the, the Munchi, as he was referred to, or Abdul Karim, um, who was uh, uh, close to Queen Victoria, and as you say, was asked to, to push off when, when she died. But our primary focus was on those of, of African descent in the book. Now, you mentioned missionaries. How much of the attitude is tied up with, A, the colonial desire to take over and colour the, the, the world map pink, but how much of it was missionary-led, uh, religion-led, bringing, uh, bringing the enlightenment of Christianity to the dark continent? Mm. That was a key uh, driving force, you know, with the scramble for Africa starting in the 1870s, missionaries were kind of a vehicle, uh, a, a more sort of civilised vehicle, if you like, for naked colonialism. But it is quite complex. I mean, you have within the missionary endeavour, there was this idea that, yes, you know, African cultures were often denigrated um, and seen as less than. But within that, there was this belief that the African race could be improved, again, in quotation marks. Um, and so there was this sort of paradoxical um, discourse, if you like, that on the one hand, um, those of African descent and those living in Africa were, were denigrated. Yet on the other hand, there was this optimism uh, and belief that they could sort of be enlightened and, and, and come to Christ. And you had a number of black missionaries from America, from Africa, um, from the Caribbean, who were involved in this missionary uh, enterprise. So it wasn't just about sort of um, spread white people spreading the gospel. There was also this belief that uh, so-called native agents, uh, Africans, had a role to play um, in bringing people over to, to the gospel. One of the most disturbing parts of your book is how science which was burgeoning in Victorian times, was used by some to justify white superiority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you have, with the scramble for Africa, 
uh, there was a sort of theoretical framework to this, the survival of the fittest. And, and Herbert Spencer, um, a kind of sociologist, if you like, who was taking Darwin's theory of natural selection and applying that to the human realm. Uh, and within this was the idea of, of white superiority. And, you know, science at this time was there were different views. You had on the one hand monogenism, which believed essentially that we were all created um, in a single act of, of divine creation, we were all part of the family of man. And that found kind of institutional acceptance in the ethnographic uh, society, which was set up in uh, 1843. But then there was this opposing theory of polygenism, uh, which found institutional acceptance in the anthropological society uh, in London, which was established in 1863. And that theory maintained that black people and white people were separate species, that there were innate biological differences between black people and white people and that white people were superior. So you had a broader kind of scientific debate at the time. Um, but even within monogenism was this idea of, of racial hierarchies as well. So, yeah, unfortunately, you know, not everyone was was musing on these scientific debates, but you certainly had that that level of uh, of racism. But did this. I read it right that actually one of the people that uh, taught a young Darwin was black? Yes, John Edmonston. Now, I mean, that that's I did not know, and I've done mm. lots of talks and lots of readings about Darwin, and I know a very senior academic who is knows everything about Darwin, but it has never been mentioned. So tell me the story. Yeah, so John Edmonston, we don't know much um, about his background other than he was born enslaved in South America and he comes over to Scotland uh, in about 1817, uh, initially in, in Glasgow, and then he settles in Edinburgh. And while in Edinburgh, he starts working as a servant to a professor at the university. But on the side, a sort of side hustle, he starts to give private uh, tutorials to uh, students. Now, while he was enslaved, he learned some of the latest techniques of taxidermy and preserving natural specimens. And this was the skills that he was passing on to students. And it was in 1826 that this starry eyed medical student who wasn't particularly enjoying medicine at the Edinburgh University uh, employs John Edmonston um, to teach him the latest techniques in preservation and taxidermy. Um, and it's for about two months, once a day, uh, totaling 40 hours uh, at a cost of uh, a guinea an hour. John Edmonston imparts this knowledge to this young medical student. And this young medical student is Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin subsequently goes on HMS Beagle and applies these techniques to um, preservations um, in the Galapagos Islands, particularly the Mockingbird collections. And it's those Mockingbird collections that form the raw material that informs his theory um, of natural selection. And so you have this direct relationship between John, Ed John Edmonston, a formerly enslaved man who taught Darwin these important skills that he used to form uh, his revolutionary theory. Uh, that's almost uh, that's almost a film. I mean, if, yeah. if, 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 if one goes into hospital now, you uh the the chances are that one of your carers will be someone with a an african heritage were in the black victorian times were the people who were shining in the medical field 
A hundred percent. I mean, we've got, you know, the nurse Mary Seacole, who's an obvious example. Yes. Um, but I think there's a, a another really interesting individual who who's often not picked up, a guy called George Rice. And it was about 40 years after John Edmonston was teaching at the University of Edinburgh that George Rice, an African-American who had um, graduated from Dartmouth College, comes over to study medicine at Edinburgh University in 1871. He graduates from Edinburgh University. He works under actually Joseph Lister, the pioneer of antiseptic treatment of the 19th century. And he goes on to work as a medical director in a number of institutions. And he marries, um, he earns a good salary of about £450 a year. He has a purpose-built house um, at a, an institution which looked after rescued children from the workhouse. And he works there as a medical director. And it was really interesting in uh, researching his life because I went to the, the Sutton archives uh, to look at his personal papers of George Rice. And I was going through um, his letters um, and bills of sales for, for various goods. And I found uh, a series of photographs that were taken outside of this um, medical institution where he worked as the medical director. And you could see in one of these photos, there's George Rice, a black man uh, amongst a sea of white, white faces of the medical staff. And then at the back um, was a black yes. nurse. And I, I you know, I, I did a double take and, and I asked the archivist, I was like, do we know who this black nurse is? Is it connected to George Rice? Is it one of her, his daughters? Is it family connection? Still have not been able to find who that black nurse was. But I remember having detailed conversations with Keisha uh, about this photograph. And we were like, yeah, you know, we've we've got to double down our research efforts because here is a prime example um, of a black Victorian presence um, that, that you don't always see. And yet in photographic archives, if you really dig, uh, it's there. At the time, the time we're talking about, would the word racist mean anything? No, no. I mean, race, even the term race was uh, a vague term, to quote um, someone of the 19th century. There wasn't a clear understanding of what, what we would understand racism to be uh, at that time. There was certainly a sense that you would you could insult someone through the words that you used, um, and there was certainly a prevalence uh, of racism and looking down on people. Uh, but this idea uh, of racism that, that we understand it um, uh, wasn't wasn't necessarily pronounced um, in in the 19th century as, as we understand it. There's a horrific um, little picture you paint at the very beginning of your book where there is a black woman who is presented naked just for titillation and curiosity tell me about her because that yeah. does seem to be profoundly racist thing to do mm. uh, yeah absolutely i mean so she's sarah bartman who was billed as the the hot and top venus and she was I from, mean, just uh, again the hot and yeah. top venus the hot and top venus i know one becomes quite sort of desensitized to these and it's it's, it's shocking um and she was shipped over from South Africa uh, to Britain uh, in 1810 um, by a guy called Alexander Dunlop, who was a Scottish surgeon to the Royal Navy. And she's displayed in 1810 uh, at Tutu Piccadilly. And for two shillings, people could come and poke uh, and prod her. Uh, she didn't speak English. Um, and she was displayed uh, across the UK essentially as uh, a freak. 
Um, and this goes back to those kind of ethnographic exhibitions. So people were were intrigued by her because she had large hips, large buttocks, uh, and because of the color of her skin. Um, and what we really tried to, to do in our book, and we, we sort of highlight Sarah Bartman's life, is to show that, you know, on the surface, you might you might think here is this, this poor victim uh, who, who's being displayed and exploited, all of which is true. But Sarah Bartman also had agency. She, she was a performer. She was a mother. She became a celebrity of her generation. She was a, a publisher as well. And so in our book, what we try and do is not simply kind of document uh, a black presence, but also look at this issue of, of agency and, and influence within within those stories. And, and Keisha was really sort of um, keen and, 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 and forthright in, in how do we give these individuals and recognize their agency without sort of, um, you know, simply victimizing them or indeed falling into the trap of, kind of black exceptionalism that these were sort of lone agents who managed to you know, smash the glass ceiling and succeed or struggle as if they were, you know, um, disconnected from broader networks and milieus. What we tried to do was tell these human stories, these individual stories, but situate them within broader networks. I mean, one of the things that hit me, I mean, we live in troublesome economic times as we talk at the um, end of September. Um, mm. But one of the things that comes about that to me was that she it was two shillings to go and see her. Now, that must have seemed like an extraordinary amount of money. Yeah, it was. And I mean, what happens with ethnographic exhibitions, and it's true of the freak show as well, is there was often different pricing scales. So more, <laughs> you know, people across <laughs> the social classes could attend. Um, so you had cheaper forms um, of ethnographic entertainment as well. And sometimes they merge. So we also look at um, someone called Pablo Fankway, who was a black circus proprietor, brought, born in Britain, born in the workhouse, actually, in Norwich in 1810, escapes the workhouse um, and is apprenticed to quite a renowned circus performer, a man called William Batty. And in 1841, um, Pablo Fankway goes it alone. He sets up his own circus outfit. And he was originally born William Darby, but he changes his name to Pablo Fankway to bring <laughs> a greater air of exoticism. Um, and that really attracted people uh, to his circus. And, and he actually really helped bring a, a high level of respectability uh, to, to the circus, which which helped elevate it in, in the public's minds. Yeah, but there is so much to go at in your book. But in this conversation, <laughs> I now want to go to another form of entertainment. Um, I presented the Blue Show on Jazz FM for years. So I'm very interested in black music and mm. the black music that I'm <laughs> I know about didn't happen till uh, the early 1900s. It begins really as, as Victorian goes, but black musical performers were coming to Victorian England to perform. Yeah. Yeah, they were. And you have this again, I think, you know, often we focus on, on jazz and blues and rightly so. And I've, I've done a bit of, of work on that with a, a different project. But in the 19th century, you had this a broad kind of music, uh, black cultural landscape, if you like, of music. And there was influences. Um, well, the character we really focus in on is Samuel Coleridge Taylor, 
who actually was was born in Britain and brings kind of the sounds of the African diaspora to Great Britain um, and is, uh, you know, a renowned classical composer. Um, so, yeah, you know, there's, there's different ways of tackling the the, the music scene. And, and we we kind of honed in on, on, on Coleridge Taylor in particular. Uh, the 20th century, things changed hugely. 1967, uh, Sergeant Pepper. But one of the top TV shows in Britain for a further 10 years was the black and white minstrels. Mm. Now, did we first see, I mean, I think it's loathsome, but it was still happening not that long, not that long ago. Had we got the minstrelsy thing happening in Victorian times? It kind of is, is born in the Victorian times and it becomes blackface minstrelsy becomes throughout the century. It starts as a sort of quite informal form of entertainment, often occurring on back streets to become a, a commercial form of entertainment by the end of the 19th century. And blackface minstrelsy really sort of starts to infect British thinking um, around issues of race because it, you know, it lampoons particularly African-Americans, presents them as comical, lazy and and stupid. And um, in, in, in our book, Black Victorians, we have a number of examples where um, Henry Box Brown, for example, an African-American man oh, yes. <laughs> um, who, who comes to Britain, is confronted with minstrelsy um, and is is slandered in the press and given the sort of a minstrel dialect. Um, Ira Aldridge, a sh black Shakespearean actor of the 19th century, is continually confronting the onslaught of um, caricatures of African-Americans within popular culture to the point where he starts performing uh, blackface minstrelsy himself um, and some of the characters that were proliferating at the time almost as a form of satire of the the, the prevalence and proliferation uh, of blackface minstrelsy and, mm -hmm. and Frederick, you know, yeah, I, I could go on. There's... No, no, it's lovely. I just, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I just did a bit of research as well. You probably didn't know this, but the Black and White Minstrel Show, which was on BBC television, was it started in the 50s and it was in black and white. Do you know that uh, when they performed in black and white, the black face was actually red because black makeup wasn't didn't take properly. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I'm sure my co-writer Keisha knows that, but I didn't. No. I, didn't. Um, I mean, I just read through this and I was wonder what it effect it had on your emotions. Do you think the battle is won? Do you think you're just looking at um, historical record or is the undercurrent still with us? I think the undercurrent is still there. And, you know, Albert Black Victorians is a, is a tiny, small contribution to a much broader um, global movement, whether that's through Black Lives Matter, but also within the realm of history. And, you know, black historians have been writing about the black British presence uh, since the 19th century. Um, you know, so ours is a very sort of, uh, humble contribution to a much broader historical movement that that I think has been has been marginalized for, for too long. And, you know, one of the things that, that Keisha and I were really keen to emphasize um, was that black history and British history aren't two separate, discrete domains. They are intimately interconnected. And as a historian of the 19th century, um, for myself, it was absolutely imperative 
in order to understand this period, to understand not just the Black British contribution, um, which was seminal um, in the creation of Great Britain, but also to understand how um, the Victorians considered race in the 19th century, because it was very much at the forefront of, of their thinking. Black Victorians is published by Duckworth, Keisha Abraham and John Wolfe. John, thank you. Thank you so much.